We continue this morning our look at the roots of the Redeemer. In the opening verses of each of the Gospels, this morning from the Gospel according to Matthew, we begin with a passage from Isaiah chapter 11, the Old Testament lesson. The first 10 verses, you'll find that on page 562 in your pew Bibles if you wish to follow along. You heard a verse or two from it as the candle was lit this morning. Let this put it into context. The first 10 verses of Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. And now from the New Testament, the words from the Gospel of Matthew, the words of the text for this morning, Matthew chapter 1, page 783. I suspect there are those here this morning who have never heard these words read out loud before. I suspect there are those here this morning who are eager to see if I can make it through. And I suspect there are those here this morning who, if I make it through, are wondering what on earth I can say about it. Listen carefully <clears throat> and hear the word of God. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. 
David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. <laughs> I like to say it every time I read the Bible, at least publicly, but I remind all of us this morning that what I just read was the word of the Lord, and it comes with a purpose. It was September of 1847. The family of Henrik J. Landeveerd and several hundred others were set to leave from Rotterdam, the Netherlands, for a trip to New York City in the USA. Sometime in October, they made it to New York. And on November 21, 1847, after traveling overland in New York to Buffalo, they boarded a ship called the Phoenix, which set out for a trip through the Great Lakes to Sheboygan, Wisconsin. On November 11, or 21, 1847, somewhere between Manitowoc and Sheboygan, within sight of their destination, after a journey of 4,000 miles, the Phoenix caught fire. William Van Eyck wrote about it in Wisconsin History Magazine, and I quote, for almost two hours the doomed passengers were in a veritable hell near the Wisconsin shores, yet unable to reach them. On a lake full of water, yet burning to death, with relief almost in sight, but too late. To jump overboard meant a grave in the icy waters, to remain on board meant certain death in the fire. The confusion and tumult were frightful. And we read of the piercing cries of the passengers, especially the poor Hollanders, in their agonies. 
Regardless of their precarious condition while in the lifeboats, the survivors were inconsolable, and never has the scene of a burning ship effaced from the memories of the survivors. The confusion, the encroaching flames, the shouting, the cries of mothers and children standing at the rail with outstretched arms pleading for release from their death trap had unnerved the survivors. And besides, their very pathway to safety had been lit up by the funeral pyre of their own flesh and blood burning to death on the Phoenix. All told, over 200 people lost their lives on the Phoenix that day. Only 46 survived. Of the family of Henrik J. Landeveert, Mr. and Mrs. Landeveert and four of their eight children perished. One of their surviving children, who at the time was a 16-year-old girl named Hendrika, met and fell in love with another survivor of that Holocaust, a young guy by the name of Dirk Vuskyle. And one day, while sitting in my parents' living room, I was thumbing absent-mindedly through a mimeographed sheaf of papers that was supposed to be the genealogy of my father's side of the family, and I learned that Hendrika Landeveert and Dirk Voskile became my great-great-grandparents. I learned some of my story in their story. I learned that while the presence of every one of us on this planet is a miracle of providence, my miracle was unique for me. And it was confirmed for me again that day that in 1847, God had me in mind when 100 years later, I was born only because Hendrika and Dirk survived. Genealogies tell a story, sometimes very exciting story. Jesus' genealogy is that kind of story. Listen, I think you'll be surprised by what you learn. 17 verses, 42 names, a genealogy, a simple one, but we knew that. It, it sits there on the first page of the Gospel of Matthew, and we all knew it was there, but we don't know what to do with it, really. It's like a preface to a book. Most prefaces make the book look more significant, but people who get the book don't pay that much attention to the preface. It's enough to know it's there. This may be there just to legitimize Jesus or give him a history, but there's more here than meets the eye. And I'm asking you to look at it with me this morning. I trust we'll find something that meets the heart. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it starts. Abraham was the father of. Isaac was the father of. Jacob was the father of. 
Judah was the father of. Now, I found my own genealogy interesting and significant for me personally, but Jewish people, particularly in the first century, found a genealogy essential. Everybody tried to get their name on one and have one for the family, and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, kept in a safe place in Jerusalem all the genealogies of all of the people of God. If there was a drop of foreign blood in your history, you lost the right to call yourself a Jew. Anyone who ever served as a priest in the temple had to be able to trace his bloodline all the way back to Aaron. Herod was the king, and Herod was hated by the Jews for a lot of reasons, but one of them was that he was an Edomite, not a full-blooded Jew. And Herod took it seriously enough that when he had the opportunity, he destroyed the genealogical records of the Jews so nobody could prove they were purer of lineage than he. Matthew is writing now to people who thought that way about a genealogy. Not that it was just an intriguing and very difficult to read list of names at the beginning of a book that said, we want you to know this is actual history. Originally, at least, it had been, it had been infected by racism. It had been infected by ideas of national superiority. But originally, the idea behind it was to maintain a record demonstrating that you were a part of the people of God. It was a way to say, I know I belong to God. So I read in this genealogy, towards the beginning, Hezron, the father of Ram. I don't know Ram. So I get my 1,375-page new Bible dictionary down off the shelf. And I look up Ram to find out who he is. You know what that great big three-inch thick book said behind Ram? See sheep. <laughs> they didn't know Ram either. But here's what I know because of Matthew chapter 1. Ram knew God and God owned Ram. It says, of course, the same about Jesus. And now that I find this story is my story, it says the same about me. This story is my story. That's the purpose of the pedigree, to tell me and remind me and never let me forget how important it is to know that I belong to God. Well, this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. Could as well have said Jesus Messiah because that's what Christ means. Clearly, the aim of this genealogy is to defend the person and the position of Jesus whose line this describes, and to defend it by tracing it all the way back 
to the people to whom God first made the promise that he was going to bring Messiah into the world, people like Abraham, people like David. They were the ones to whom and through whom God said salvation would come to the world and to Israel and to others and to me. I'm in the story again. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you, God promised Abraham. And those peoples on earth included a young Dutch teenager named Hendrika and her husband, a young Dutch teenager named Dirk Vaskile, and one of their descendants, a fellow by the name of Joel, and his children and theirs. The father of, the father of, the father of. You just can hear it rolling and keep coming. And all of a sudden it says, whose mother was. And that's different. This was not your typical Jewish genealogy. It was not at all customary in a Jewish genealogy for the name of a woman to appear. And this one, purporting to be the genealogy of the Son of God, has five. Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary. There is what any self-respecting Jewish male of the first century would have said was pollution in this pedigree. William Barclay, the commentator, wrote, if Matthew had ransacked the pages of the Old Testament for improbable candidates, he could not have discovered more incredible ancestors for Jesus Christ. But in one grand declaration, with just a couple of names that you could easily slide by, God states, gender no longer matters to God. And he said that to a culture that taught its little boys to wake up every morning and pray, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not a slave, I'm not a Gentile, and I'm not a woman. They were still praying it when Jesus was born. And those women are in God's family tree. Racial barriers are gone. And that to a nation that said, if you have a drop of foreign blood in your veins, you are not a Jew. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth weren't Jewish at all. And Bathsheba married an alien. Race doesn't matter to God. But most importantly of all, there were people in this list of 42 names who had a past to regret. And the message in this genealogy is that of grace. A grace that is greater than all their sins and a grace that is greater than all of mine. Here's a genealogy that begins and ends with a miraculous birth. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have a child and Joseph and Mary shouldn't have a child and both did by God's grace. And their story is my story and yours. Children born of the same 
grace. And what appears and used to appear to the Jewish nation as pollution in the pedigree is really the message of grace from God to us. A name is not just a name. And we've seen a bit of that already this morning. But a number is not just a number either. And now I want to say something about that. I realize there isn't a number mentioned in this genealogy till you get to the last verse. But any Jew who would have read it or heard it being read would have been counting all along. And as he counted, he would have heard numbers. Numbers with a message. I call them the equations of grace. And the first one is this. You'll agree with the equation, I trust. 14 equals the sum of 4 and 3 times 2. So what? Bear with me for a minute now. This may be difficult to, to understand and remember, but I want to read just a paragraph from Dr. William Hendrickson's commentary on Matthew. He said, seven is the sum of three and four, each of which in its own way suggests fullness. Three, when used symbolically, spells that which has beginning, middle, and end, and is therefore complete. In scripture, it is at times associated with God, viewed in the fullness of his glory, the source of blessing for men. Four, used symbolically, refers at times to the fullness of the earth and or the heavens with their four winds. Now, if even three or four taken singly can express fullness, their sum, seven, when used figuratively, conveys this meaning no less emphatically. In Scripture, seven frequently indicates the totality ordained by God. Fourteen, which is twice seven, also brings out this idea. Agree? Well, that may all sound really far-fetched and a stretch for your imagination, but this is how first-century Jews thought and they would have noticed it in this genealogy. The equation 14, a number which appears frequently, <clears throat> at least a quantity which appears frequently, equals 4 plus 3 times 2. Even more than completeness. And knew it to be a numerical way of saying, God is with us. Emmanuel. God is here. It's possible to learn something from an even more obscure sounding equation. D plus V plus D equals 14. D plus V plus D, as you might have guessed, is the name of David. And David was always to the people of God a symbol of God's faithfulness, a reminder of God's faithfulness, a reminder not only of God's presence, but his continuing availability to the people of God and assistance to them. Now, you have to know that the Jews assigned a numerical value to every letter in their alphabet. 
and their alphabet only had consonants in it, no vowels. You just knew what the vowels were that belonged in that word. So D plus V plus D, DVD, is David. That's how you spelled it in Hebrew. And you knew that it needed an A and an I between them. And the numerical value of the letters that spell the name David, DVD, just happened to total 14. And when Matthew concludes the whole list by saying, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ, he's whispering through the whole thing, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. It was to David and through David's line that God had promised to bring Messiah into the world, and he was doing it. And while you may think that this whole list of names is kind of a dry and dusty, perhaps necessity to put at the beginning of a gospel to legitimize it, Matthew says there's a message in it, and he doesn't want you to forget it, and neither does God. Now, there are actually even some more nuances and more subtle nuances in the names and numbers that I'd also like to call to your attention this morning. Nuances that become apparent, if you were looking at it in your pew Bible as I read through it, you would have noticed that there were three separate paragraphs in the genealogy. Three groups of names, each with the same number of names in it. Three groups, each representing a different era in the history of the people of God, and each with a message for today. The first of those groups is in verses 1 through 6. And it's the story of God's dealings from dawn, the dawn of history, all the way to King David. It's the story of the beginning of God's dealings with humanity, all the way to the apex of his dealings with at least Hebrew humanity in the person of King David. It began with Abraham. And the promise was made to him and to us through him. It was fulfilled in David when Israel became a full-fledged nation. They were chosen by God, not because they were so great, not because they were so numerous, not because they were so smart, not because they were so righteous, not because they were so handsome and beautiful, but because God in his wisdom chose to use them and work through them to bring the gift of salvation to the whole world. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Wait a minute, Judah? Another rule of Hebrew genealogy is that only firstborn sons' names were included, and Judah wasn't a firstborn. Reuben was older than he was. In fact, there were three brothers older than Judah. Judah's position in the genealogy of Christ would have said right away to the Jews, doesn't matter when you were born. Doesn't matter to whom you were born. Doesn't matter what you did or what you didn't do. Your position in the family of God is a gift of sheer amazing grace. The paragraph from verses 7 through 11 describes a whole different era in Jewish history 
an era of decline, an era that saw them go from excellence to exile. There are names included in that paragraph of people who were instrumental in splitting the nation into ten tribes and two, and ruling while the temple was destroyed, and being there when the nation was deported to Babylon, and finally into exile. Verses 7 through 11 describe a story of sadness and failure and shame and tragedy. And the second paragraph of Jesus' genealogy is like a parable of the fall. People who had been the servants of God became the slaves of sin. It tells the story of folks with names like Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Jotham and Jeconiah. And once again, a guy by the name of Joel. And you can put your name there too. And verses 12 to 16 describe the journey from judgment, God's judgment on sin, to Jesus. From Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Egyptian, Syrian, Roman captivity, all the way up to liberation in Jesus, who is called the Christ. Though the names in this paragraph are almost entirely unknown to us, they evidence that even when we don't know it or realize it or pay attention to it, God is at work in our world on our behalf. The third paragraph is the story of our redemption. Do you see? The, the paragraphs even in this genealogy are like a parable of human history Created good, fallen into sin, saved by grace to us in Jesus. There is in this genealogy not only who we were and who we are, but who by God's grace to us in Jesus we can become. And so you see the story of Jesus' beginning is in reality a story, a paradigm of our new beginning because of Jesus. It's the story of someone who was appointed by God, who was, who was offered by God, who in fact was God here for us. It's the story of 14, God's faithfulness. It's the story of forgiveness, no matter what there is in your past. It's the story of creation and fall and redemption in Christ. It's the greatest story ever told, but it is also not just a story. It can be your experience because he came to save you from your sins. And you can know him as Emmanuel, not just God with us, but God with you. Let's pray. Oh, God. The going was a little tough through this list, but the message was implicit in it. A message of your faithfulness and your love and your grace to us in Jesus. So give us enough of a Jewish mindset to at least see that and to see that you wanted to make that clear to your people and to make it clear to us. And so help us hold up the binoculars the right way and bring the great truths of Christmas closer. Your faithfulness, your forgiveness, 
and our eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. <laughs>